and welcome to Gray Area, a podcast from WFMU and freemusicarchive.org.
All right, you've been listening to Talks Cheap here on WFMU, East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, worldwide on the World Wide Web at WFMU.org. And uh, in just a moment, I've got Matt LeMay here in the studio. He's a, uh, a writer, a musician, a coder, and a generally think, thinky-talky dude. <laughs> I'm beginning to regret ever having written that. Oh. Just no, kidding. I, no, I, that's fine. <laughs> I think that sums you up pretty well. Because it's all about, you know, summing summon things up and turning them into packaged content. So that is how, how we've summed up La- Matt LeMay into something that's easily digestible. How but, apropos. Uh, but Matt, you've, you've written this great article called Living in the Age of Art versus Content. And we're going to get to that in just a second. I want to let people know what we've been listening to. Uh, we heard from Dustin Wong with Anniversary Song. And that is a free download from the Free Music Archive. It's also available on a cassette called Let It Go. And uh, Dustin Wong, of course, played earlier this week a live set on Liz Berg's show here at WFMU. And is a member, I guess Ponytail's not active anymore, but uh, a member of the great Baltimore band Ponytail and also Ecstatic Sunshine. Uh, you can grab an excerpt from that live performance as well from freemusicarchive.org. There's a link in the playlist. Heard from Lucky Dragons, a hero of the Free Music Archive and of people everywhere, from the Open Power 12-inch EP, the song Power Melody. Tell you what, I'll tell you more about it in just a bit because we've got Matt LeMay here, and he's a busy guy. He's got to get going. <laughs> so, Matt... Uh, Thank you, first of all, for stopping by. Thank Jersey you so City. much for having me. Yeah, of course. It's, uh, well, you, you wrote this really interesting article that ties into uh, a lot of discussion going on about. Well, there was there was a Village Voice article that asked, you know, is it possible to sell out in 2010? Um, kind of prompted by this New York Times article about the Converse recording studio opening up, where <clears throat> bands yep. in Brooklyn can record for free, and uh, it's all just like, you know, Converse throwing out money so that they can kind of brand these bands and right. uh and before that there was the song that uh was recorded by converse um or recorded via converse by best coast and kid cuddy and uh rostam from vampire weekend so this uh this discussion has been taking place this particular iteration of this discussion has been taking place uh for a while and uh i guess the 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 New York Times article was just kind of noting the fact, you know, lifestyle brands are becoming the new record labels because record labels uh, don't necessarily have the money to invest in a band's future the way that these big brands do. And uh, sort of closed by asking, is you know, is that going to change the sound of of uh, of the music that's being made today? And then uh, this this Village Voice piece uh, sort of responded saying, no. That's it's not going to change the sound of the music being made. Now, what? How do you feel about that that question? Well, I don't think that the presence of companies like Converse or the role that those companies are assuming is going to change the way that music sounds. I actually don't think. You know, I, I wrote about this a little bit in my article that you know, this this whole article was actually prompted by some friends of mine who are sort of over thirty indie rockers asking me why the kids today don't care about selling out, saying, you know, when we were your age, 
we were really worried that if a major label A&R guy approached us and, and gave us a deal, that they were going to come back, you know, six months later and tell us that they didn't hear a single and tell us that our sound wasn't commercial enough um, and that our career was going to be over. And that, in fact, happened to a lot of artists, um, especially mm-hmm. in the 90s after Nirvana broke, when there was this unbelievable gold rush to sign the next Nirvana um, which actually produced a lot of incredible records, but also destroyed a lot of incredible careers. Um, what's I don't think that Converse is going to come in and say that they don't hear their sneakers in a, in a Best Coast song or in a Neon Indian song. What's more interesting to me and what I think might in some ways be changing, if not the way that musicians create music, but certainly the way that we receive music, is the dynamic that would compel Converse to get into this market in the first place, and which would compel Mountain Dew to start putting out music, which is the fact that music is now being consumed as branded content. So, so that's before before a brand even gets into it, into it, you're saying like, that's how individual people consume music. Well, right. I'm saying that the streams that that disperse music, that distribute music, you know, people generally, because you could say, and and it's true, that record labels are brands too, that you used to go to the record store and say what Merge or Matador or Sub Pop brand music came out this week. But when you were doing that, in fact, those, you know, the sort of funny irony here is that those labels, those companies were determining to an extent the aesthetics of, of those particular scenes and those particular eras. So... You know, a band would listen to a lot of stuff on Merge and say, I love this music. This music has affected the way I make music, so I'm going to make something that sounds like my favorite Merge records. In that sense, this company, this record label, has in fact affected the sound of the things that they're putting out. So, so, uh, I mean, yeah, that's very clear that that's, that happens with record labels that are kind of in it for the music and have this distinct kind of niche sound. But, but do you think people are going to start saying like, oh, I, I want to sound like Vice? <laughs> I, I hope people are not already saying that. Um, the, well, I mean, the, the issue of lifestyle branding is sort of a broader question about whether that's effective at all, um, you know, whether advertising in general is effective. Um, you know, companies have always been desperate to get some kind of, some kind of foothold in whatever the cool new demographic is. Um, and right now with, you know, with so much media being consumed online, banner ads aren't working that well. For a Converse to buy a banner ad doesn't make a ton of sense because people are really good at ignoring banner ads. There are plugins you can get for your browser that defeat banner ads. People don't get a very high click-through rate on banner ads. It's incredibly ineffectual advertising. Mm -hmm. But if Converse attaches their name to a song that they know is going to circulate through the same media that they would be buying ads on, then they've got a much bigger return on their investment because rather than having a banner ad on Pitchfork, you have the lead single on Pitchfork. And it says, brought to you by Converse, recorded by Converse. Yick. That, that just feels, you know, <laughs> what, what was so weird is when, like, you know, there's the, like, Neon Indian signs to Mountain Dew. And then, like, all these outlets that I will sometimes turn to for music-related news are covering that. And it's just, like, the name Mountain Dew is there. And, and they're just kind of covering this fact. And I, I don't really... Well, but let, let oh yeah, go uh, ahead. If I can, sorry, if I can turn for a second. The thing is, I think that that throws in our face how 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 majorly this these things have changed. But I don't actually think it's that different from what was going on before Mountain Dew got into the arena. Yes, it's a little shocking to see the brand Mountain Dew because it's such a clearly commercial national brand. 
But you know, when a when a blogger tries to affix their stamp to a band, as soon as that band begins to come up through the ranks, and then basically trolls anybody else who writes about that same band, saying, "I was there first. This yeah, is you got to give me credit." Right. This is a, a my blog brand band. I've put my stamp on this band, and now whenever anybody else writes about them, I expect to be credited. I expect my brand to benefit from that. I don't really think that's all that different from Mountain Dew saying, well, we commissioned this music, so whenever somebody posts it, we just want to be credited for it being Mountain Dew brand music. I don't think that's really that different. It's just that the brand is is a national corporate brand as opposed to somebody's personal media brand. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, you, had, you had some interesting words for the blogosphere and kind of the hype cycles and the emphasis on the new. Let's let's uh, kind of outline. In, in your article, you talk about art on the one hand mm-hmm. versus content, and that's kind of a a new new way of looking at what's going on. If you could talk about the differences. Sure. That was far and away the hardest part of writing this article because you can't go down the road of defining art yeah, without... T- Matt, tell us what art is. Well, <laughs> how long do you have? Um, <laughs> well, what I, what I tried to do, and I don't know if I did a great job of doing this, um, is to say that art and content aren't essential categories of things. So you can't say, well, Jandek is art, but Neon Indian is content. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't have anything to do with the music itself, necessarily. Art and content are two different ways you can relate to something, two different kind of interpretive frameworks you can apply to something. <clears throat> I actually sort of liken it to the um, the the debate about rockism that was happening among among rock critics a while ago, where they were saying that you shouldn't judge pop music by the same standards that you judge rock music. And some people began applying the label rockist to artists. They'd say, oh, I don't like the Hold Study, they're too rockist. Um, But rockism is an interpretive framework, it's not a category of music. Yeah, music is music. Music And then people need to put it into some sort of category. Right, and um, you know, I, I, I... there's also the, the risk of going down the, the, the grumpy indie grandpa route with this whole line of reasoning and saying, well, in my day, I wore my Jesus Lizard t-shirt to the concert and we talked about music like we really cared about it and now these kids are just on their blogs. Um, but I don't necessarily... Oh, my God. I, I just... There was this ridiculous Henry Rollins vid- video that... Brian oh, I haven't Turner seen that, out. but I heard about it. Yeah, where he's at Cake Shop yelling yeah. at hipsters. I, I almost sent that to you last night because somebody <laughs> commented with another Henry Rollins video on, on your article. But yeah, he's, he's, he's just taking this super defensive stance he's like he's like oh all, all the people in here they they all think I sold out they think <laughs> yeah. well you know I think it is a sore subject for a lot of artists who worked really hard to navigate this when it was more when it was more treacherous waters I mean there was a time when if you were on a small label and you signed to a big label you know regardless of how good the work you were making was people would be furious at you you know you would be accused of being a sellout and you know that I think that concern was overstated and that artists were held to an entirely unfair standard of artistic purity. But by that same token, you know, people cared enough about about these bands to be furious, to say, we have enough invested in this that if if it changes to appease somebody other than us, we feel personally hurt by that, mm-hmm. which I think is something that when you're consuming music as content, it's much harder to get to a place where you can muster that kind of outrage because if the band you love starts doing something you don't like, you can just, you know, subscribe to a different blog or listen to a different band and within two or three clicks, you have a new band. And I what would maybe what you're saying and definitely what uh 
the Village Voice article by Zach Barron was saying is that people don't really care anymore. Like, Henry Rollins is just kind of being paranoid, thinking, like, everybody here th- is going to hate me for selling out. Right. Well, I mean, I think Henry Rollins, again, you know, was was dealing with this at a time when that was a, a major concern. And I think that some of the defensiveness is unwarranted. Um, I mean, defensiveness in general tends to be unwarranted. But I also think that it's understandable that people who really struggled with this and tried their best to navigate, you know, back when a major label was sort of the primary means of getting your music to a ton of people, you know, should a musician limit their audience because getting into bed with a major corporation is a bad thing to do? That's a very complicated and very loaded question, and a lot of people are going to have wildly different opinions on that. Um, But I think that now, you know, it's true. I I think that, I don't want to say people don't care, because I don't want to insinuate that people who love music today don't love music as much as people who loved music, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago. But I do think that that attention is kind of more spread out, that the love you have for music you know, you can give a little of it to a lot of music as opposed to giving all of it to a little music much more easily, if only because you have access to a lot of music. And there are really good things about that, too. You know, there's the fact that in in streaming music to yourself as content, you're going to be exposed to things that you would probably never be exposed to if you were just very slowly and deliberately trying to navigate your own taste and your own curatorial impulses. Um, so there's there are really good things about content. You know, I'm not saying art is great and content is terrible. But Let's here. I, I want to just dig a little bit deeper into your distinction between art and content because sure. you say in your article that art is, uh, you know, this kind of it's like it's something that challenges us and something that that uh, um, maybe we ha- we have a little bit of a distance to or it takes us out of our lives mm-hmm. and and uh, content is something that can you know we we can kind of apply directly to our lives and you know post to our blog or whatever or or make our own or cut and remix so it, it kind of seems like what you're saying about content is that it's st- stuff that takes advantage of digital technology to uh sort of i mean i i i think they're definitely that's true to an extent but the 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 point i was trying to make is not so much that digital technology is is entirely in line with with content, because digital technology is is an incredible creative tool for everybody, um, and how you choose to relate to the to the music or art or whatever that that produces is up to you. Um, I think access is kind of the key the key element here, and and ease of access. Um, I mean, I I also don't want to insinuate that art has to be challenging. That if something is pleasant or is not challenging, then it, it doesn't have to be art. Um, what I was, I guess... Access is good, or access is du- a double-edged access sword. Access is a double-edged sword, sure. exactly, because, you know, there's a there's an element of return on investment here in, in music that I think that if you have to really think about why you're seeking something out and what it means to you and what it says about your taste and what that's going to compel you to do next, if you have to be... <clears throat> if you have to take an active role, an active role in those curatorial channels, then you've put more into something. It's like, I'm sure everyone's had the experience of buying a CD, hating it, and listening to it a million times because you just spent $15 on it and you don't want to feel like a chump. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I got into Current 93, actually, and now I'm a big fan. Um, <laughs> and that experience helped me develop and grow my musical tastes because I had an investment in that music. Um, in terms of the going back a step to the issue of art being disruptive or being 
you know, I think I think broadly speaking, the point I was trying to make is that the standard for good art isn't is much higher and much more interesting than the standard for good content. That you know, you, you can name a, a number of different definitions for good art, and everybody's going to define art differently. But odds are, those definitions are are, are going to be substantial. You're going to say, art shows you something about yourself. Art changes your life. Art improves well, the world. Let, let's not talk too much about art because okay. it's, it's it's hard to define. But con- this idea of content is what I think is really, uh, really interesting, and in that it's well, reading your article, it, I it came to mind these. Uh, Two things, and one one was uh, I was down at the Future Music Coalition conference listening to to T Bone Burnett. Yes, give some some words of wisdom, uh, which basically were stay off the internet if you want to be if you want to be an artist right now. His words of wisdom were particularly MySpace, like stay off MySpace, right. and and that you know it's a little bit crazy. He's like kind of kind of getting on in age, <laughs> but uh, but he had a point in that if people come across your music on MySpace and it's surrounded by these ads that MySpace uh, puts on there or uh, the context in, through which people discover music uh, affects how it's perceived. Absolutely. And I think I think that's kind of, for me, what may, maybe what you're getting at with, with content. But yeah. I was wondering what you thought about T-Bone Burnett's advice there. I'm actually, I feel like I'm about to out-cynical T-Bone Burnett, which is a little scary. Um, Yikes. <laughs> I don't think artists have control in this case. Um, and that, you know, you could even tie that back to Lars Ulrich being furious about Napster, not even because it was taking his money, but because there was music that he didn't want to be circulated that was being circulated. Hmm. Um, artists don't really have that much control. And, you know, am I the biggest fan of Neon Indian and Best Coast? No. But my intent with this article was not to pile up on them and say they're just making crappy content as opposed to the real artists who are making art. I don't think that musicians have that much control over whether their music is received as art or as content and I think that content is the dominant mode of receiving music right now and it is very possible to be exposed to music as content and to develop a much deeper and more substantial relationship with that music you know you can go on MySpace somebody tells you about a band you go on MySpace you hear about them you hear you hear the music you think it's interesting you look it up on Google you find somewhere where you can actually download the music as opposed to just streaming it on a site with ads you know you go and then you can go to iTunes and download the entire album, and you have it right then. And that's really powerful. That's really good. And in fact, that's, I think, the best option available to bands right now, regardless of how they want their music to be received. If you don't put it on the internet, nobody's going to hear it. If you don't put it on MySpace, then somebody's going to come to you and say, oh, are you guys on MySpace? And you can say, you know, screw you. I don't, I don't, I'm not a, I'm an artist. If you have to go on MySpace, I don't want you to be a fan of my music. But that's obnoxious. Um, I, I know people who've done that. Well, but I, I kind of admire them for it. I don't, because I think that for, for musicians to say that they don't want people to like their music or that they don't want X set of people to like their music is generally pretty self-serving and disingenuous. Um, hmm. You know, people liking your music is not a bad thing, even if they're people you wouldn't want to spend a week alone in, in a cabin in the woods with. Um, you know, it's 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 rewarding as a musician for people to pay attention to what you're doing. And if you say, "I'm just gonna I'm gonna do this the old-fashioned way," I'm just gonna, you know, even you know, because one of the things that came up in response to this article was tape labels and, and the fact that there are things coming out on vinyl, and that's great. But I more, doubt more and more, more and more. But how many people are buying things on vinyl and tape that they didn't hear on somebody's blog or on a website? Content still remains an incredible tool for discovery, even if once you've discovered something, you choose to engage with it on a deeper level. 
Hmm. So, um, what what should we be doing right now? <laughs> to uh, to because because a lot of what what people seem to be saying is like this is, you know, that this is our fault. This is everybody's right. fault for not for not um, actually investing enough of our own in in music and in record labels that lifestyle brands are becoming the new record labels. Well, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing that lifestyle bands uh, uh, brands again, I think it's really smart for lifestyle brands to be doing what they're doing, but in terms of the the negative repercussions of this, I think you know, going back to the rockism issue, the problem is that we're applying a, a critical standard as listeners and as critics that we're not really thinking about. That we're not thinking about the fact that when the goal is to get something on your Facebook page that's going to get people interested in you, when your goal is to put something up on a blog that's going to get clicks, that's going to drive traffic, then that's a different goal from from sort of figuring out what you love. And there are certain characteristics of music that make music better suited to being successful content. As I said in the article, if music comes to you with a really interesting backstory, if it's controversial... Um, you know, it's a lot easier to write about music that, that you think is terrible than to write about music that you kind of like, or even arguably music you love because you have less at stake in it, but it's still going to start getting people interested in your opinion and your point of view. So I think one important thing to do is to stay, take, just take a step back and say, all right, the music that's going to grab my attention while I'm on my Google Reader checking my email has X, Y, and Z qualities. These aren't good or bad. This is just one particular set of attributes that music can have. And it's important as a listener not to mistake that for your own taste or yeah, for... The stuff a, that, that immediately grabs you in the context of clicking through tons of web pages is not necessarily the best. Right. But, but yeah, I, I do feel that, that the sound of music is changing yeah. based on how, you know, it's like if it doesn't grab you in three seconds, if the texture of... of the beginning of, of a song doesn't have some cool like square wave I've been rambling about that for years um, that that you know music fandom and music criticism has sort of devolved into a, into aesthetic sorting yeah. you're like well this has this sound so it goes in that category and this has this sound and it goes in that category um, um, well so so uh, just one last thing because I know you got to go get get back to work over at the can we say <laughs> the the URL shortener yes. Yes, I uh, I do platform at Bitly during the day. Um, but uh, shout so, out to the to the BetaWorks and Bitly teams. Yeah, I holding use, it down. Use Bitly a lot to uh, pass around links to content. And so <laughs> so so you were saying that you were working on this article before the news about the Converse recording studio came out, and this was stuff you were thinking through. But then you ended up leading off the mm-hmm. article talking about, hey, so this thing, it's kind of like topical thing yeah. happened. Is that is that do you think a what, is is your article then kind of trying to become more content? Oh, absolutely. The yeah. article, I mean, the article, with writing, it's always different. I mean, I I have a ton of respect for a lot of my colleagues who are music writers. Um, I've found some writing about music to be incredibly valuable and, and illuminating and, and just beautiful and wonderful. This article was, was a functional article. And part of, you know, I don't want people to sit at home reading my article 20 times every night and falling in love with it. That's not the point here. The goal was for it to reach a lot of people and to get people thinking about something specific, um, which is what good content does. So did I try to front load it with things that make it sound relevant? Absolutely, yes. Did I promote it to Twitter and Facebook and tell my friends to do so as well? Absolutely, yes. Um, 
I didn't think I was creating something that was going to be related to his art. You know, I wrote I wrote a book about Elliot Smith, which I think is terrible content, but is a is an interesting way of 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 relate of sort of plugging into somebody's relationship with with music that would fall more under the art category. And I would probably say more people have, you know, ten times more people have read that article in a week than have read the book <laughs> since it came out in April, which makes sense. Content spreads more quickly and reaches more people. They also forget about it quicker. Yeah. Um, well, Matt, thank you very much. Matt thank LeMay, you so much for having for, me for stopping and, by. Um, and uh, there are there are there's a link to the article at the top of my playlist for those listening online. Um, you can also just probably Google MBV Music Art content it'll come up when you get home if you're listening in the car or something and uh, matt lemay's website a question of frequency.com has a lot more writing and other other related projects and uh well i thought i thought after well, any, anything else you want to add before no just thanks again and thanks to to wfmu for continuing to be the uh greatest radio station in the universe oh geez thanks and uh yeah we you know, we definitely feel like if we if we brought some lifestyle branding to WFMU, that would compromise <laughs> what we're doing. I don't I don't know what people out there think. I'd love to hear from some people in the comments. Uh, but here's here's a great band that I am. I gotta say, I'm pretty psyched that the people over at Vice are supporting Pierced Arrows because they're an awesome band. And here's a a track from them on WFMU. <laughs> Yeah, in my brain. 
<laughs> I didn't really like my yeah, yeah. I know. Okay. I couldn't, I couldn't tell. tell.
the disco and I see a girl I like. Come over here, darling. I wanna stay with you tonight. Oh, 
All right, we've been listening to the sounds of Raleigh Moncrief. Song Cheese Steak. Here right now in the background, it's new from Raleigh Moncrief. His Vitamins EP. He's also a member of the Advantage guitarist for Marnie Stern helped engineer the Dirty Projectors album Bite Orca I guess some of those samples figure in to his music here various various recordings which you can uh, you can download this new EP for free from freemusicarchive.org along with everything else that we heard in that last set Mastermind XS it's new from the LCL Libric Comelar net label. It's a new EP called One Dub Many Roots. Weird memories of a machine. Blah 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 prior to that. Totally crazy. Set themselves on fire. Band from uh, from the UK, late seventies, creating sounds that were deliberately anti-music, anti-cool. It's from their their bio. They've got a uh, four great collections of recordings available for download from the Free Music Archive, 69 tracks in all. We heard from their gold collection, In the Army. James Yates before that, with a new Creative Commons MP3 from the Bad Panda net label. We bring a new track every Monday. Uh, James Yates, he's a percussionist, plays with the Pattern Theory, and he's released music on Fat Cat Records, or their Fat Cat Demo Archive, which is, I guess, some sort of sublabel type thing. We heard from Gigi Allen's, uh, I don't know if I can say that word in this context, but it starts with a D. Gigi Allen's band member with Chaos Theory for a box of toys off of King of the Road. And that was off of, or that was released by You Are Not Stealing Records. label out of uh, I'm not totally sure where they're based but the Stealing Orchestra is behind You Are Not Stealing Records I guess they're based in in Portugal Porto, Portugal and uh, so is Gigi Allen's D 
who we heard with Chaos Theory for a box of toys. We heard from the transmitters prior to that with Radio Studente. Off of Count Your Blessings 1987 and 1989, that's also released by You're Not Stealing Records. They're an English band. Played with the likes of The Fall, Gang of Four, This Heat, or, or compared to those bands. I thought they opened for The Fall at some point, at least. This is a really cool collection. We heard Radio Studente off of Count Your Blessings, My Teenage Stride Before That from Brooklyn, New York, off of their five new songs, which they debuted at freemusicarchive.org. We heard Dr. Dayglow, and I keep alternating between which of those five new tracks is my favorite, but that one's sounding pretty pollardy. so I thought it was appropriate to play as I'm getting amped up to see God of My Voices this weekend. I gotta, gotta find a way to justify that outlandish ticket price. Ugh. The paparazzi. That's what we heard before that from the Rococo tape. Amp Eater's Breakthrough Radio Compilation. It's a set of tracks compiled by Amp Eater Music who release free digital seven-inch singles. And this, their first compilation had music from Cerberus Shoal, Little Women, Mount Erie, the Debo Band, Pistolero, Normal Love, all sorts of good stuff. And this new one has tracks from Liturgy, Hallelujah, The Hills, Megaphon, and this one by the paparazzi, who I did not know anything about. But I am now a fan of. Pierced arrows at the top of the set with In My Brain, originally released on a 7-inch. On the Pierced Arrows Dead Moon label Tombstone, and uh, we've also got some tracks on the Free Music Archive from Vice Records by Pierce Arrows, and kind of relates to that conversation that we were having earlier. Talking with Matt LeMay about art versus content, and you know, if Vice Records is going to support artists like Pierce Arrows, that's great. They've been doing it for a long time. They're getting on in age. Nice to see Henry Rollins chiming in on the playlist comments. And I say that with tons of respect. In the background, we're listening to Broke for Free with Calm the F Down. This is WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope Worldwide on the World Wide Web at WFMU.org. Jason Siegel here with you. Talks cheap, and the podcast is called Gray Area. Thanks so much for listening. Check out the music at the Free Music Archive, and a big thanks to Matt LeMay for stopping by to talk art versus content. See you next week.